this morning we are going to be dealing with uh, the doctrines of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to start with baptism. Uh, I can't remember what page it is on your bo- in your books, but it starts on 70. 70. And we're starting with question 69. Kate, could I get you to read the question and answer for 69? How is it signified and sealed to you in holy baptism that you have part in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Thus, that Christ instituted this outward washing with water and joined to it this promise, that I am washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as certainly as I am washed outwardly with water, whereby commonly as the filthiness of the body is taken away. All right. All right. How about, William, you read question and answer number 70. What is it to be washed with blood and, blood and spirit of Christ? It is to have forgiveness of sins from God through grace, from the sake of Christ's blood, which was shed for us in his sacrifice on the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ, so that we may be more and more die. We may more and more die in the sin and lead holy and blameless lives. All right, John, would you read number 71? Where has Christ promised that we are as certainly washed with his blood and spirit as with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This promise is also repeated where Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. All right, there's a lot there. And I wanted, I meant in the preamble to say this. Children, I want you to think, it's, it's very easy to think about baptism in the abstract. All right, many of you were raised in a tradition where you were baptized as an infant. How many of you remember your baptism? Not many, some of you, yes. Everyone who was not baptized as an infant remembers their baptism. Yeah. A lot of you don't remember your baptism, and that's okay. Uh, but I want you to think, as we're talking about the doctrine of baptism today, not to think about it in the abstract, but think about it particularly. You have been baptized. What does it mean that you are a baptized member of Christ's body? Uh, so think about it through that lens, because I think that's a helpful lens, because of what I think one of the things we don't do enough is think about our baptism. What does it mean that you are baptized? What does it mean that I am baptized? And I'm hoping some of those answers will come into your mind as we go through this. But what are we saying in the first three questions here? What what, what are they getting at? Uh, Is there anything, and again, I'm going to let you all choose your own adventure here a little bit. So if there's any thread in these questions you want to pull on, we can go pull on those threads. Um, what, what were some of the phrases? What, what seems to be the concern of these three questions as we start off talking about baptism? What's the point of baptism? Washing. What, do they, what, what does it, what picture comes into your mind in these questions? Is it a really complicated picture? Is it really a, it's hard to understand. What picture do they want you to think about in your mind? 
Something being made clean with water. Who is doing the washing? Hmm. Who is doing the washing? Who, who is speaking? But at the very ba- baseline, at the very basic level, it wants you to think about what is happening to this child. This is our view, our child. What happens having this infant who's having this water sign applied to it? What are we supposed to think about when that happens? I think about washing Christ, you know, and his baptism. But, um, and then go forward and baptize after that. There is supposed to be a connection, yes, with Christ's blood, being washed in Christ's blood. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> being washed in Christ's blood, is that a saving event, or is that, just a, is that just kind of a, like, it could do something, it might not do something? Saving event, right? So something is actually happening uh, when you are washed in Christ's blood, and that's what it is a picture of. Does that mean that everybody who is baptized is saved? So why does the Bible speak like that about baptism? Why does it speak in a way that could have you believe that if you are baptized, you are automatically a Christian? Something very real is happening. Something real is happening. So we're going to get to this in, in the Lord's Supper in a little bit, but there is a common view of the sacraments, that they are merely signs and symbols. All that is meant for you to do when you see baptism is to see a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ in water form. So if that's all you are supposed to be remembering or seeing is this sign and the symbol that's supposed to help you remember Christ's death, that's fine, right? But if there's no power there, what is its purpose? Other than in that moment, you get to remember Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, it's a similar thing with the supper, which we'll come to, but the supper. If the supper is just bread and water, I mean, bread and water, bread and wine, if it's just bread and wine, how often do we need to drink some bread and wine? Well, when it's done that way with baptism... I always took it as more, this is my profession of faith. Like, I am now a Christian. Yes. So, uh, Matt brought up earlier, who is speaking in baptism? Who is the one speaking in baptism? God is speaking in baptism. So, if God is speaking in baptism, why do we believe it should be applied to infants? Because Right. So there's infant baptism. One of the things that the confession is concerned about is infant baptism, which we get to in the next set of questions. So actually, I'm going to hold off on that for a second. But who is speaking in baptism? It's God who is speaking in baptism. Uh, G.I. Williamson uses, a, again, he uses helpful analogies. Uh, he uses the analogy of a handshake. Uh, with regard to friendship. So if me and Noah are friends and I go up and I shake Noah's hand and greet, greet him, how much should I trust that Noah is my friend if I'm the one who's going up and shaking his hand and, hey, how are you doing? What are you doing? You know, 
I'm initiating that relationship, right? But if Noah comes up to me and greets me in the morning, shakes my hand, says, hey, Stephen, want to see how you're doing, checking on you. Could I have more comfort about that interaction, that Noah is indeed my friend and cares about me? And Yes. And so in the same way, in baptism, if it is God marking out you as his chosen, as his church, you become part of the visible church, um, how much comfort can we take in that? How, how much comfort can we take in the fact that God has called us out of the world if he speaks? A lot. I think that's especially important when you try to think about the effectiveness of baptism. If baptism is supposed to do something more than just remind us, what, whatever it is, if it's supposed to be effective in what it's doing, it's hard to believe it's effective if we're the ones doing it. And that's why you see you know, many of us who grew up without infant baptism have a similar story of being baptized at the youngest age we were able to make a credible profession. Maybe that's five, six, seven, eight. But then we have some sort of crisis in our teens because we don't feel close to Christ because of our behavior and we're not walking with Christ. And, and we even say, well, what did I possibly know when I was five, six, seven, eight? I need to be baptized again, and this time I'll do it with more. And it becomes, and I, I say this as somebody who went through this, so take it with a grain of salt if it makes you mad. It becomes like the great pumpkin, where it's this, you've got to find the most sincerity, and it's the most sincere. And then you turn 19, and you have the same sort of crisis because you're off at college. And, you, and then you become a young adult, and you have the same sort of crisis because if the effectiveness of the baptism was based on you, your sincerity, your work, how in the world could you trust in that if you have any self-reflection later in life? How many times are we supposed to be baptized? <laughs> Once. How many times, if you come from the Anabaptist position or our Baptist brothers, how many times have many of them been baptized? Multiple. <laughs> Multiple. That makes complete sense. For those of us who grew up, um, in uh, or with relatives who were really concerned that we would pray this sinner's prayer and that you, you know, if you pray it, you're good, like you're, you're good. But we're the one who has to pray it. We've got to do it. And then all of a sudden we live, a, uh, you know, we, we live our life. And you know, we've had a pretty bad, rough couple of weeks, you know, lots of spankings, lots of discipline, lots of grounding, whatever. And we think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I need to pray that prayer one more time. I'm going to pray that prayer one more time. I'm going to pray that prayer one more time because it's the prayer that I'm praying that is the thing that makes this effective. And if it's the prayer that I'm praying that makes this thing effective, it's not so effective, is it? If it's, if it's me declaring, this is, this is my declaration. I am following Christ. Here it is. I'm going to be baptized, right? This is it. I'm for real this time. And then you have a bad week. You have a bad month. You have a bad year. You have a bad decade. What do you feel like you got to do now? You need to get baptized again because this is my declaration. This is something that I am doing for God. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm bringing to the table. It's from subjective to objective. And it's not that the declaration doesn't matter. The declaration matters very much that we profess Christ and are laying hold of him by faith. But if, if the entire objective reality of my life in the covenant is based on something I said and did rather than God saying and doing, I'm hosed. 
said, this, children, is why I wanted you to be thinking about your baptism. Because your baptism is important. And I don't think we, I said at the beginning, I don't think you or I think about our baptism enough. Because we are supposed to think about our baptism. What are we supposed to think about our baptism right now? It's happened in the past. Something that's, This has happened in the past. What are we supposed to do with that? How can our baptism be useful to us now? Does anyone know, has anyone heard the phrase, improve upon your baptism? Said a different way, you've probably heard it said, we work out our faith with fear and trembling. Peter said, work out your faith with fear and trembling. It's a working out, uh, it's, 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 God has marked us, has set us apart, has said, as you were washed with this water, so you have been washed with Christ's blood, right? But something else has to happen, right? The water does not save. Does water save you? That is actually a view at this time that they're fighting against because that is what the Roman Catholic Church believed in the 16th century, which is when that water goes on, it actually removes original sin. Your original sin is removed. What is original sin? The sin of Adam. So what happens if original sin is removed? Pardon? I still have plenty more. Well, don't we all? Um, but the water doesn't go on and, and cleanse you. Something else has to happen. What do you have to have? What do you need? What does it require of you to be saved? Righteousness. Somebody's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, it requires faith. Believe, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So we... As we think back on our baptism, when we're having doubts, when we're having dark nights of the soul, and we think, I can't possibly be a Christian. Can you believe the thing that I said to my mom or my dad? Or can you believe the thing I said to my husband or my wife? Or can you believe the thing that I did? This thing is so unforgivable. I cannot be saved. What you should think in the back of your head is, but I've been baptized. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm saved? No. Does it mean I want to live like Christ? Does it mean I want to do good works? Does it mean I want to uh, live in accordance with God's word? If those things are true and you have a repentant heart, then you are saved. And we can look back to God's promise in baptism. God's promise that he has marked you and set you apart. How does that strike you? Have you thought about that before? When you tie in the faith part of it, sometimes it's hard to defend against people who don't believe in the Say more about that. Well, I think I can, you can get to a point in dialogue where it is all God. It is not us reaching out. But when you tie in that you, you have to have faith, like you, I mean, we've all said if, if we are baptized as infants, we don't remember it. So how can an infant, I mean, they, they can't express their faith, so. That's the key word. There's a difference between possessing faith and expressing faith. And we tie things very timely, don't we? Like we say, the only way baptism could be involved in my salvation is if at the moment I'm baptized, I have faith. As opposed to God who would zoom out and say, 
you know, both things are present. That's why when the Bible talks about baptism, it always connects it with faith, and it often connects it with new obedience. It's, it's, a, it's a package. It's a promise. Who is, exer- who is exercising faith in the baptism? Parents. Yeah. Parents. Jesus, the Bible. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you can see it in the story of the Exodus, you know, which is, is spoken of in the light of baptism. You have, you have these babies that went through the sea and had no recollection of that, but then could look back in the wilderness and go, but God was faithful to me. God was faithful to my family. God has called me out. And now I'm going to trust on the promises. Look where I'm at. So, go ahead. It's, it's a... It's a so I'm just going to go. There's no promise for you and for your children if and for your children doesn't have meaning separate from the promises for all who believe. Right? Like, and your children and your household is a distinct category. And if the promise is not for them, all the children of the visible church, whether they will ultimately believe or not, then that phrase has no meaning. What he should have just said is the promise is for everyone who believes, full stop. But you just said there's a difference in possession and expression. Does that carry over into the Lord's Supper? Yes. We're not there yet. <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about infant baptism. Let's talk about why, uh, why we baptize infants. Let's, uh, let's look at I'm just going to skip ahead to question 74. Uh, Nathan, will you read 74? Question and answer. Um, Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they, as well as their parents, belong to the covenant and people of God, and through the blood of Christ, both redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to their parents. They are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be engrafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision in place which in the New Testament baptism is appointed. There's a lot going on there. What is happening to a child who is baptized into the church? What does it say in the answer to that question? belong to the covenant. They use the term in there, engrafted. They're engrafted in. They're actually part. Do you know what, uh, y'all know what a graft is? You plant nerds? Who's <laughs> What's a graft? It's just when you take, a, you take like a piece, maybe a branch of a new plant, and attach it to an old plant. And what happens? And they usually grow together and form. And they usually grow together and form. Yep. So they want you to have this picture of this child is, is, is actually being connected to the church, not in just a like taping it on kind of way, not just taking some duct tape and, and putting that branch on there and like maybe it will just look okay. And it, No, it, it's actually going to grow and be a part of that church. That's part of the grace we're talking about here in baptism, children. The reason you're here this morning is because your parents think it's important for you to grow up in the church. You were baptized into the church because your parents think it's important for you to grow up 
in the church with all of its benefits. What are some of those benefits? It's hard to think about them at, at 9.40 on a Sunday morning, right? What are, some of the, what are some of the benefits of growing up in the church? Look at your table right here. Look, look to your left and to your right. Who's sitting next to you? Friends? Friends? Fellow brothers in Christ? Fellow sisters in Christ? The fact that y'all are able to have fellowship together and grow up together? Yeah, I have noticed um, it's a friend group that no matter when any other friend group fails, like when I lose other friends or don't have, like move to, like if I move to a new school or something, I always have this church. You do always have this church. Let me ask you this though, Nathan. When you grow up and you go off to college, are are these going to be your closest friends necessarily? No. No. What, what are you going to have to do when you go off to college? Make new friends. Hopefully you'll find a church that believes similar things to this church, and you're going to make new friends. And what connects you with those new friends? The church. <laughs> yes, the church. Say it with more conviction next time. The church, right? We have, a, we have a connection with the body of believers, and that is a huge benefit and is grace to us throughout, of our, throughout our lives. What else is a benefit of being raised in the church, of receiving the mark of baptism, of being a member of Christ's church? Continual hearing of God's word. Continual hearing of God's word. Many of you know, many of you children know, one of my favorite Uh, ideas, mental models, if you will, is the idea of compounding. Does anybody know what the idea of compounding is? I've only talked about it a bunch in our class. Surely one of you children remember when I talked about it. Pardon? No. Okay. Compounding is small things done over a long period of time make a big result. can result in something really, really big. So does it seem like Coming to church every morning, I mean every Sunday morning, and worshiping for an hour to an hour and a half, hearing God's word preached, singing it, hearing the prayers of God's people, uh, receiving the sacraments, does that, just doing that this morning, does that seem like a big deal? I don't think it's that big a deal. I mean, it's it's just one, one Sunday, right? What if you do that for 52 Sundays out of a year? That's a lot more Sundays. That's like... What if you do that for 10 years or 20 years or 80 years? All of a sudden, you're doing something, you're hearing something, you're receiving something week in and week out. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite, I'm going to butcher this quote. One of my favorite movies growing up was Remember the Titans. Loved Remember the Titans. Great sports movie. Coach Boone has uh, come in to you know, coach in a white district, and he's got to take on the other uh, white head coach is his assistant coach and they're arguing in the hall or something about the playbook and he gives them playbook and he's like this isn't much of a playbook he's like that's right six plays (laughs) he's like six plays it works like novocaine he's like we run the same six plays and he says eventually it's going to work and it's very similar it's one of the things it's very similar here it's not a complicated playbook it's it's just not as complicated as many people want us to believe it's the preaching of the word 
It's the reading of the word. It's the praying of the word. It's the singing of the word. It's the eating of the word. It's being washed by the word. It's all of those things. It's very, very simple, but it works. And that's what you have access to. All those who are baptized into the visible church, that's what you have access to every single week for the rest of your life. And that changes lives. Questions on that? Comments? The author of the book of Hebrews summarizes it this way, the opportunity to be in light, to taste the heavenly gift, to share in the Holy Spirit, to taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. It's a pretty intense summary of what we're doing. Go, go to uh, chapter 6, though, and read go, go further along the... The, I was trying to avoid that. Oh, never mind. <laughs> that, I mean, that's what that is. When you talk about apostasy, the summary of what you're giving up when you walk away from the church is the opportunity to be enlightened, to have once been enlightened, to taste the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of the Word of God. It's amazing stuff that's offered because you're part of the church. There's great responsibility that comes along with your parents' decision to baptize you. But why do we baptize infants? Um, For that, we have to go back to the Old Testament, and we have to look in the book of Genesis and look specifically in chapter 17 when God tells Abraham to give his descendants the sign of circumcision. Uh, And this sign was given to all children? Just male children? Just male children. Just male children. Um, and for up until Christ, this is how you knew you were included in God's covenant. Um, we connect baptism with circumcision, so it is the sign of the covenant. And when Christ came down to earth, did he make things more inclusive or less inclusive? More inclusive. What, how? how? Accepted non-Jews? A lot of the um, traditions and stuff and rules and stuff. Yeah, he, he, may, he expanded the definition of the covenant. No longer is it for Jews only, it is also for Gentiles. And not only is it for just the male children, it is also for females. And so now we can apply the sign of the covenant to all, not just children of Jewish males, but to all. Um, so since the Old Testament, the... Um the males are circumcised and set them apart. Then were the women sort of engrafted into that um, chosen also of the male that was circumcised? They were included, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, they were included, they just weren't given the sign. So they, they were included by, because of the, either their husband or their father was part of the covenant. They received that, and that was good. But now God graciously gives the sign to all. So you don't have to 
we don't have to be concerned about, you know, do I receive the sign? The sign is open to all. The, the call to the, of the gospel is open to all, and all can receive it, and all can be baptized. So, sort of like an infant baptism, right? We're sort of engrafted because of our parents, right? We're included. Same sort of thing. Correct. Our, our children, the, the promises to us and to our children until the, th- the thousandth generation. Um, and yes, they, they are included because that is God's promise to us. And it only requires one believing spouse. So you could have a unbelieving spouse and a, not, uh, and a believing spouse, and that our, the child is considered holy, right. set apart because of that one, one believing spouse. Yep. Uh, what other questions y'all have on? Yes. What? I don't know if we're ready, though. Let's just go there. Okay. Let's do it. Well, I guess I'm curious that the, the norm used to be you're born into a believing family, you get the sign, that's, that was the norm. And then in the New Testament, there were lots of families that weren't believing families because they're, they're hearing the truth and they're not, they're Gentiles. So they do get baptized because they did not grow up in a believing family. When did that become normal for now? Like, that's what's normal now. Normal, like that's what's done a lot of the time now. Children born into a believing family, but not baptized until they're professing their faith. When did that happen? When did that shift happen? I'm going to defer to someone who has more church history than I do. Um, you, have, you have some early century disagreement over baptism, not a ton, and certainly the majority position of the church in the early centuries was pedo-baptism. I think the explosion, I think the answer to your question is the explosion um, is probably closely tied to the, the Second Great Awakening and the individualization of the Christian faith, this idea that God deals with people primarily one-on-one rather than in covenant and in community. And that's when personal conversion became the hallmark of, of Christianity rather than union with the church by sacramental sign and covenant. But uh, also, you see that any differently? I'm no expert on this. No, I agree. And I, yeah, I just think that that whole framework of individual versus covenant, we don't understand. So, why we don't understand that we're fallen under Adam or redeemed under Christ. Confuses the whole dynamic of baptism as well. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the American culture feeds the flame. Yeah, individualistic. It's me. It's my decision. It's you know, it's all around. It's all about me. I mean, come on. It's it's hard to separate our current, what we live in, the the the, the culture and time we live, and think about what it was like, you know, when Heidelberg was being written. What what were their main concerns? I don't think, I mean, they do emphasize infant baptism in here, just as you would emphasize any other doctrine. I don't think it's, it's a reaction to the Anabaptists, because my memory from reading 20 years ago, so <laughs> caveat that, is that that was not a primary position. That was not a position many folks were that concerned about. Their primary concern is with the Roman Catholic Church and the heirs, uh, their, their errant view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So 
this, th their focus on infant baptism is not so much, hey, we really want you to believe in infant baptism. I'm taking somewhat of that focus this morning because infant baptism is so out of favor in the American church and in the church over, in, in general today. Uh, it's just not the dominant, depending on if you want to talk about Catholic and Orthodox, but like Protestant, it is not the dominant view of Protestantism. You really have to know your Bible, and, and you know many of our Baptist brothers and sisters know um, have far more memorized than I do of, of Scripture. But you have to know the narrative arc of the Bible. Otherwise, you go to the New Testament, and you say, "Well, look at all these examples of adults being baptized," and that's a very reasonable way to look at those texts. But when you ask where they fit in the narrative arc, you, said, you could go back to Genesis and say, "Oh, look at all these adult men being circumcised." Therefore, we should wait until men express their faith. <laughs> I, no, what was, the, what was the narrative arc there? And it was, no, when God declared a covenant and a covenant came into being in a household for the first time, of course the adults would receive the mark of that covenant. They'd never received it before. But a child that's born into the household of that covenant was treated differently in the Old Testament. They received it from birth. Why would that change? And it'd be a pretty drastic change. And so we go to the New Testament looking for any sign of a change. And they go to the New Testament looking for where's the exact verse that says we should baptize children. And it's a little it's talking past each other. Yeah, and the, the baptism of John the Baptist, like we, we, we don't have time this morning to go into all this, but there was a transitional period between the Old Testament and the New Testament John the Baptist's baptism is part of that transition, so you can't really look to John's baptism as being synonymous with what baptism should be today. There's more things we could talk about that kind of escape the scope of what we're doing this morning, and I want to move this towards the Lord's Supper, so I'm going to cut that off. Happy to talk to you more about anybody about these issues around baptism. Uh, I think the one, the, the, the takeaway I want everyone to, to take from this is we don't see baptisms every Sunday. We, we, we see, we've only had several baptisms since we've, you know, started this church. Um, so they are much more rare, which makes this, what we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, a little more seemingly relevant, pertinent, helpful. But I really do want you to think, spend more time thinking about your baptism and what that means for your salvation. What, what duties and requirements does that place on you that God marked you out? What, what is required of you in living your daily life, of being a student, of being a husband, of being a father? What does it require of you that you were baptized by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? All right. Can I ask one? You can take away the one. The one thing we didn't touch on in baptism was mode. Does, it, does the Bible have anything to say about yeah, if anybody wants to come up and have some mode uh, debates, we can definitely do that. I, it will shock no one to know that, you know, probably everyone, me and Paul and several people have uh, opinions on that, but John? More out of curiosity, uh, baptism here is practiced through pouring, sprinkling, how is it normally done in, in your Pouring. 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 So by mode, is, are you meaning submersion, dumping? Yeah. 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 So it's got to have water and it's got to be the Trinity. Those right. are the two critical elements. Right. <laughs> the rest is a little 
Yeah. The 30 second answer is we have to practice mode in a way that you can square with the New Testament teaching on mode. And so we. Squirt guns are not okay. We think pouring pouring is better than sprinkling because you need a little more water. Seriously, it's that pragmatic. Like you need a little more water for it to be baptism. And we think dunking. Whether or not that would even be consistent with the New Testament is is not required by the New Testament and is practically impossible in a church context. I mean, what are what are you supposed to do? You have to build a baptismal pool. And putting in a lot of infants are not going to enjoy that. Well, you need you need a polymer large pool that you can put up at need, just like the uh, early church. Had. <laughs> I will say it's been the position of our session from the beginning. Mode is one of those that if if uh, if a member felt particularly strongly and had biblical conviction over a particular mode, that's not a fight we're going to have in this church. We all good there? If not, we can talk about it later. Yes, thanks, Jake. Uh, all right, moving on to the Lord's Supper. Um, Mom, will you read question 75? Question and answer. How is it signified and sealed to you in the Holy Supper that you partake of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all his benefits? Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him and has joined therewith these promises. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me. As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further, that with his crucified body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. As certainly as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, which are given me as certain tokens of the body and blood of Christ. There's a connection between these two sacraments that I want us to see, and it's not one that is often emphasized. And it's God really does want us to see the connection between washing and what he is doing to you the wash like there is such a connect like just as this body is being washed with water so your soul is being washed with the blood of christ that is what is being offered to you and in the supper just as you are actually eating the bread and drinking the wine you are communing with christ like he is actually feeding you and uniting you to Christ. And he gives us these tangible symbols, these simple signs. Anyone can understand them to show us that there is a real connection here. So I want to say that at the outset. I also wanted to say a couple things about the views of the supper. Are we all, I'm just going to run through them real quick. There's four primary views of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The first and the one that they are most concerned about in the 16th century is the Catholic view of transubstantiation. So transubstantiation is the elements become the body and blood, the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. Therefore, what is happening in the mass is that a priest is actually, 
actually sacrificing Christ every single time. Christ's sacrifice happens again every single time. This is why the reformers were so at odds and so incensed about this doctrine during the Reformation, is that Christ's one sacrifice is now repeated over and over and over again. So his one sacrifice was not sufficient. It has to happen again and again, and these elements actually become the body and blood so that we can actually... And so that's what they're fighting against here. There's another view. Uh, this was Luther's view. So then the, you know, the <laughs> reformers couldn't all agree on exactly you know, what's going on in, in the supper because let's be honest, there's some mystery there. Uh, so Luther comes in, and um, I had to write down because I always forget, but it's called consubstantiation, and it's a really confusing doctrine. It basically says uh, Luther believed that the bread and wine retained their substance uh, and that the body and blood, the, sorry, the blood of Christ were truly and mysteriously present in, with, and under the elements. Take that with what you will. I have no idea what that means. It's, they're around them somewhere. It's mystical. Uh, Zwingli was another. Um, Zwingli was another reformer. He his view is the most common in the church today. So somehow Zwingli won out, and his is the dumbest. <laughs> uh, okay, second dumbest. Um, that, 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 was a, that was not a correct way to say that. Uh, Zwingli's view is the least satisfying view of all of them, and that's the one that the American church has adopted today. And basically what that means is all we are doing, all that is happening in the supper, is that it is a memorial only. All we are doing when we take that bread and we take the wine is remembering that Christ died for us. It's a remembrance. We remember Christ died, and therefore that does something for us. It's like the Zwingli is like you're looking through a family photo album. It, it stirs up warm fuzzies. It reminds you of the past. It has value for the sake of remembrance. But there's nothing of substance happening, happening beyond the memory. Except they've added the whole, well, it doesn't, they added the examination piece, which makes looking through the family album much more dour and sad. <laughs> It's a, very sad, it's a very sad practice. Um, so if you have that view, which is the predominant view in the American church, how often would you practice the supper? Why? How often do you pull out your family photo album and look at it? Every day? Once a week? Once a year? Maybe on Easter? Maybe on a family holiday? Yeah. Um, that, that is the dominant view of the church. And that is why many of you probably came from a tradition or a church that rarely, if ever, practiced the supper. In fact, I dare say many of our friends, many of our coworkers, many of our family go to churches, unless they go to a Catholic church, which has its own issues. If they go to a Protestant church, probably don't practice the supper all that much, if they hold to a Zwinglian view, because it's really not doing much for me. I can remember Christ just fine, doing other stuff. Not a big deal. Then you have the view of Heidelberg, which is the what we call the Reformed understanding, which is the predominant view of John Calvin, 
which is the real spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper, which says that Christ is spiritually present. Why, why, can't, why can't Christ be physically present? Why is, that an, why, why is that an impossibility, besides that it's heresy? <laughs> yeah. Bodies in heaven. Right? We have, we have to ignore the fact that Christ came down and was incarnate, became man, took on flesh, became a, like, has a human body, like you and I. And that when he was raised from the dead, he, he has that human body again. It's in a glorified state, but he has that human body. He's going to have a human body for eternity. So he is located in a place, and that place can't be in some bread and some wine. So that's one of the issues. Um, Christ is spiritually present. And we receive and we are united to Christ through faith by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt Christ when he was here on earth, that indwells Christ now, joins us to Christ in the taking and the receiving of these elements, this bread and this wine, in the same way I'm eating it and it is going into my body and is uniting to me, I, I am being united to Christ. There's this idea that each and every Sunday when we are taking the bread and wine, it's not just a snack. It's not just I'm remembering what Christ did for me. There is actual grace being given to you. You are actually being united. When you partake in faith, key, when you partake in faith, you are actually being united to your Lord and Savior, to Christ's body, and you are being sanctified. And that is grace. That's why we call these a means of grace. Your baptism is given to you before you can even accept it, want it, know you need it. It's given to you. And that's grace. It's grace to you. The supper is given to you to hold, to have, to taste, to touch, to ingest. And that is grace to you. And would you want to do that? If that is true, would you want to do that rarely? Would you want to do that once a year? Once a quarter? I want to do it as often as we meet. And that's why the view of the session at this church is that we have communion every Sunday. Because if it is a means of grace, if it is a means of God uniting you to his son, of making you more like him, because you're being made into him, why would we not want to do that every Sunday? Uh, Questions on that? So in the spirit of congruence with your beliefs and your practice, Mm. If you were running out of time in a service because of a baptism or new members or something like that, would that be the thing that you would cut from the liturgy? Uh, would the sacraments have been celebrated that Sunday? If we had a baptism, would the sacraments have been presented? Some were, but would you participated in the part that unites you with Christ by grace, um, by faith? Is it sinful to not do? I'm not saying sinful. <laughs> I'm just saying, saying ruin with what you're saying you believe. So do we think scripture requires baptism? Or Does not require it. Okay. Doesn't require any part of service. Yeah, okay. So I think, so we have, so we have, so we ha- What did you say? Some parts are required. You, you can't not have prayer and the preaching of the word. Okay. 
yeah, the, the, we believe in the regulative principle, which tells us what we can do in what, what, and what is required of us in worship. Um, and if we have a baptism on a Sunday and choose not to have the Lord's Supper because there is a sacrament present in the service that we don't normally celebrate because it's not an every week kind of thing, I think we have the freedom to do that. I think we could argue about what is the wisest thing to do in that moment or what is the best thing to do in that moment. But there has to be room for Christian disagreement on that, I think. Pam. So, is there, so I grew up in monthly communion. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a fear of when it's every Sunday, and it's not just throwing it out there, of it becoming or losing some of its meaning? You know, sometimes things that we just become habitual, we don't think about, they just kind of. I don't know if that was discussed or... They, they don't like my example. Sorry, I just used a different example. <laughs> uh, is there does any does other, prayer become less is there any, yeah, yeah, is there, That's I mean, a real not, question. Is, is there any other part of the service that we ever ask that question about? Probably not. But I noticed during when we do communion, that's a point that you, you bring up a lot. The importance of this, not to take this as just something they do, kind of, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the reason for that piece in particular, so the, the answer to your question is no. We're not concerned about frequency diminishing the potency of what is happening or its effect on us. Again, going back to my, <laughs> remember the Titans analogy, like I, I believe over time, like I, I don't believe every time you take the supper, you're going to have the same experience of that taking the supper, right. right? But over time, you are going to be united more and more to Christ. You are going to become more and more like Christ. And I think it, the answer ties in a little bit to Kathy's question, which is one of the things that, in my experience, you have to guard against with weekly communion is um, people will start, the temptation is there, to believe that there's a kind of grace available in that sacrament that's not available anywhere else in the worship service, and that that becomes sort of the the emotional peak of the service is the Lord's Supper, and that everything else becomes diminished in comparison. And so one of the things you're trying to carefully guard against on both sides is your question, Pam, of how does this not become just a thing we always do, but also, how does this not become something more important than the other means of grace, the other elements? All right, we're done. Thank you.